Well, if you've been around Highlands for any amount of time at all, you've probably heard us talking about the sovereignty of God. It's one of those big words that we talk about a lot. What we mean by sovereignty is we mean that God is the creator, and therefore God is in complete and total control of every single aspect of his creation. From the events of the cross to an ant that walks across the sidewalk, to the changing of the seasons, to the timing of the Lord's return, to the judgment that he will bring, he is sovereign. And as we inch closer in our study in Matthew to the cross, that sovereignty comes into focus very, very clearly, especially in this passage this morning. God is still sovereign over the events of the cross. And sometimes when we look at the events of the cross, we can be tempted to think that something's going wrong. And it's kind of that age-old question, who put Jesus on the cross? Was it the Jews? Was it the Romans? Was it us in our sin? But the reality, the ultimate answer to that question is God himself put his son on the cross because of the sovereign plan of God. Even those events where it seems like things are going wrong, where, where Jesus will be betrayed by a member of his inner circle, by Judas, all under the banner of the sovereignty of God. And this morning, it's my hope and prayer that the Holy Spirit will impress many things onto our souls as we take a look at these famous events. So let's jump. Hopefully, you're in Matthew 26. As Pierre read for us already, last week, Pastor Josh took us into a major narrative shift. We've passed all of the teaching discourses that Jesus had. Now we are into the events of the cross. Josh brought out a comparison last week. The woman who valued Jesus so much because, by doing that, sacrificing a precious family heirloom. And then on the other side, you have Judas for a mere 30 pieces of silver. will sell out his friend. The woman expressed true worship, and Josh brought out the truth that worship is costly, but God is Worthy. And so the betrayal of Jesus last week we saw is set in motion. Verse 16 of Matthew 26 tells us from that moment on, Judas was looking for a chance to sell him out and get that money. We tune back in this week to the betrayal of Jesus, but first there's a little matter of fulfilling a few hundred years of Old Testament prophecy. So look at just verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened, the feast of the unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? If we just pause there, there's lots of contextual unpacking that has to happen here just in that one verse. If only Highlands Bible Church offered this midweek kind of study where we could get together and we could talk about contextual unpacking and what that looks like and how to do that, that would be so helpful. Oh, wait, we do. Every Wednesday at 6.30 p.m., shameless plug for midweek. Matthew tells us this is all happening during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is a perpetual feast honoring the time that God delivered the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt. They were slaves for over 400 years in Egypt, and God delivered them from slavery. Let's get a little bit of context as we head way back into Exodus chapter 13. Starting in verse 3, this is, this is the origination of what they're talking about here, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, 
out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt, and it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. So that's what's happening right now. That's the background of all this. This is a major feast in the Jewish calendar. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, again, remembering how the Lord had delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt. And at the end of the feast is the Passover Supper. Passover, we read all about. Tom brought that passage out. Passover is also from Israel's time in Egypt again going back to the time that they were slaves of Egypt. And the reason why Pharaoh eventually let Israel go was the Passover supper. And the Passover was the event, as you heard read from the Old Testament, when the angel of the Lord came in judgment to judge Pharaoh and the nation of Israel that everyone who did not have the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, the firstborn of that house would die. And that was finally the straw that broke the camel's back. That allowed Israel then to finally leave. And so Passover, like the Feast of Unleavened Bread, was an annual remembrance for Israel. Remembering the time the blood of the sacrificial lamb saved Israel and spared them from the wrath of God. And so back in first century Israel, in Greco-Roman culture, they still celebrated both the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover. And by all accounts, it's probably all smushed together. In one week, you probably couldn't tell one from the other. It just all was one big event, and that's what's happening here. And so Jerusalem was filled with thousands of people in town for this feast. And so the disciples, of course, started to get a little squirrely and say, well, okay, where's this going to happen? Like, did we make arrangements in advance? Because we have to keep the Passover feast, and uh, I don't know, Jesus, looks like they're running out of lambs. We better figure something out quick. Do you have a plan? And of course just like Jesus did when he got on his donkey in Palm Sunday and made the triumphant entry. He has a plan for the Passover as well. Look at verse 18 of Matthew 26. Jesus says this, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says my time is at hand. Period. Full stop. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. So Jesus tells them, go into the city, go into Jerusalem. You're going to see a certain man. And of course, if you're somewhat analytical, you're thinking, okay, you said there are thousands of people. You're just going to go into the city and see a certain man. He gives them no direction, what color shirt he's wearing, password, nothing. But we have three. This account is in all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so we know from the parallel accounts that there was a little bit of a hint 
It was this guy, I believe it was Mark's account, where uh, the man would be carrying a jar of water and would actually approach the disciples. And maybe then he would say the secret password. I'm not sure. So say to this mystery man, the teacher says, his time is here. My time has come. We'll celebrate the Passover at your place. Again, the gospel accounts tell us that this house is actually more of an upper room. It's a, it's a house fully furnished and reserved for them. Whether Jesus made preparations beforehand or it's a miracle, we don't know. Either one probably works. The disciples go and do what Jesus told them. Side note, always the best plan. Just go and do what Jesus tells you to do. Just putting that out there. That one's for free. They saw the man. They got access to the room. And then they went and prepared the Passover. We didn't talk about all that. It's not really totally contextual. But their bitter herbs, the unleavened bread, the wine, the cups, all of that. They prepared the Passover lamb. You probably wouldn't be surprised to know that if you go to Israel today, they do have an upper room, or what they call the upper room. And I took a picture when we were there back in 2019. There's us milling about the upper room, which we don't really think is the upper room, but some guy said it was the upper room, and so they tell all the tourists that it is the upper room, and then we go up there. It also needs a paint job because there's paint chipping from the ceiling over there. I think there's one more shot of the outside, so you kind of get an idea of what that might look like as the upper room. Side note, we hear tell that Pastor Ryan is planning an Israel 2024 trip. So, more information on that. Save your pennies. He's trying to spin that up, and I will be able to get you more information on that. So, lo and behold, the disciples do exactly what Jesus tells them to do. And that evening, which would have been the next day, according to Jewish calendar, because the next day in the Jewish calendar starts at sundown of the day before, They're all together in the upper room, they're eating supper together, they're eating Passover, and that's where things get really weird. Look at verse 20. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, truly, I I say to you, one of you will betray me. So they're all eating the Passover supper together. Cultural custom, again, reclining at the table. Most men, would, the table was low, and you would probably lay on your side on some sort of giant pillow, not like the tables and chairs that we have today. You kind of It was a leisurely dinner. You would pick at your food. You would be there for hours and hours, not like the food shove and dash that we do here in America. It would take forever. And, Ju- and Jesus just casually drops a bomb. And it says, truly, I say to you, One of you will betray me. One of you will turn me in. And we know from verses before, passages before, that the Pharisees and the scribes are actively looking for an opportunity to find Jesus and kill him. And Jesus says, one of you will make that happen. One of you will turn me in. Imagine that scene, the joy, the celebration of the Passover supper, the intimacy of eating a meal together in full trust, and then Jesus drops in the middle of all this, one of you is going to turn me in, and I'm going to be killed. The disciples are naturally freaked out. The betrayal of of a close friend in that custom alone, for us, we can't even relate to that, but in that custom, that culture alone, it was unfair thinkable that you would betray a friend like that. Look at verse 22. And they were very sorrowful 
and began to say to him one after the other, Is it I, Lord? For some reason, there's a negation in the Greek, but for some reason, ESV didn't do that. CSV does. It's more like, not me, is it? Not me, is it, Lord? He answered them, he who has dipped his hand in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Our text tells us they were sorrowful. They were upset by this statement that Jesus made. They keep asking, is it me? Is it me? One by one they asked, not me, not me, is it? And Jesus, his answer doesn't really help them. He says, the one who's dipping bread in the bowl with me is the one. Well, thanks, Jesus. We've all been dipping bread in the bowl with you, right? They got the the salsa and the chips going on. They're all dipping And it was probably crushed fruit, and it was probably fresh, nice, warm bread, right? Some of us are bread moppers. I'm a a proud bread mopper myself, right? I could make that plate nice and shiny by the time I'm done, right? And Jesus says, the one who is dipping the bread with me, he's the one who's going to betray me. This didn't help them at all, because everybody was dipping their bread in there. So Jesus isn't so much trying to identify the exact person, but again, he's making the point that it will be one of them. One of them that our hands may have touched while we were dipping the bread together. One of you that's been with me for three years. We've slept together, we've taught together, we've, we've been terrified together of the Pharisees and the scribes. You've seen me do miracles. One of you will. One of you here tonight will betray me. One commentator writes, it's the height of disloyalty and betrayal is to share a meal with a friend before betraying him. And I'm trying to paint this picture too because, you know, we don't really have that so much. Like if you share a meal with somebody, you share a meal with somebody. It's a big deal in Middle Eastern culture. It shows trust. It shows that you can rely on that person. And then for someone to share a meal with Jesus, especially the Passover meal, and then walk right out and betray him to his enemies is unthinkable. And there's actually a, a prophetic psalm that speaks of this in Psalm 41.9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. The idea, again, of you're lifting your heel, your heel comes, your heel comes off the ground as you're doing something against your friend. And in this case... Judas would be going, walking to the scribes to turn him in. And Jesus goes on to say, it is written. It is written. The Son of Man goes on. Is it the Son of Man, his favorite messianic term for himself. He says, it's written about me. I'm going to go to the cross. It's going to happen. But he says, woe to him who betrays me. This is probably the biggest curse that you could call on someone to say it would be better for him to never have been born. And Jesus curses the betrayer saying it would be better that if we were not alive because he's going to face severe judgment from my father. So hold on, hold on here, Jesus. Is, Is this part of the plan or is Judas responsible for his sin? Yes. Exactly. Both. It is part of the plan, and Judas is responsible for his sin. 
These are the two rails of the train tracks. These are the two wings of the airplane. You can't have biblical Christianity without both divine sovereignty and human free will. And they are not in conflict. We think they're in conflict, but they're not. God uses the will to create or to fulfill, I should say, his divine plan. His will is already created. But he uses our wills. He uses the evil that is in Judas's heart to betray him. But Judas is still responsible for his actions. And if that hurts your brain, it should. Because we can't figure that out because we're not God. We just have to leave the tension that Scripture has that there. And Judas Iscariot, it's his turn now to ask Jesus, and he says, it's not me, is it, Rabbi? And the other accounts, again, if you look at them later over lunch, you're going to get confused. But the best I can figure is probably Judas leaned into Jesus privately. Now that everybody else has had their turn, now it's Judas, it's his turn, he's last. He probably leans into Jesus privately and says, is it me? It's not me, is it? And Jesus says, yeah, it is. It's going to be you. At that moment, Judas gets up. The other accounts, I think it's Luke, even says at that moment, Satan entered him, I guess, in fullness for evil, and he left. It was kind of transparent to the other disciples because Judas, again, was the money guy. They actually maybe assumed that Jesus leaned over to him and said, hey, we need more unleavened bread. We need more wine. We need something. Go get it. And so the disciples probably didn't realize that that's the conversation that happened, and the other gospel accounts kind of fill in those details for us. Judas then gets up and leaves, and the disciples kind of figure he's going on an errand. But look at something very closely. Look at something very important with me. What does Judas say? He says, it's not me, is it rabbi? What did all the other disciples call Jesus? Lord. Judas never called Jesus Lord. All the other disciples called Jesus Lord. Jesus, Judas called him teacher. Rabbi, I like your message, Jesus, but I'm not going to submit to you as Lord. You know, I could kind of get down with everything you've said. You did some nice things to some nice people. You kind of made some sense sometimes. You're a great teacher, but you're not my Lord. It's a very, very powerful and quick detail in there. You know, Jesus had been saying all along that he will be delivered over to the priests and to the scribes and they will kill him and that is the plan and yet one of his own will be the one to give them that chance. All against what? Don't lose this. What's the context? All against what? The backdrop of God's deliverance. That's the whole reason they're there is they're celebrating the deliverance of God the deliverance of Israel out of slavery. And in the midst of that, the celebration of God's faithfulness for how he rescued them from slavery, he is then betrayed by one of his own. Don't miss that context. It's the whole thing. And so maybe I'll say it this way. God is sovereign over deliverance and betrayal. God is sovereign over deliverance and betrayal. They are literally in the city, having the feast, eating the Passover to celebrate God's deliverance for their enemies, and yet Judas is going to turn right around and deliver Jesus into the hands of his enemies. This is an amazing contrast here, and yet God is sovereign over both of them. The deliverance from the enemies and the handing over to the enemies, all according to the plan of God. 
And if we look at each one of those briefly, like deliverance is fine. We love deliverance. God, deliver me from this. Usually the this is something that's really hard. Adversity, trial, sickness, whatever that is, God, make the pain stop. Please deliver me from this. We're, f- we're fine with God being sovereign over deliverance. We love that. But look at one thing with me, church. How long did it take God to deliver Israel from slavery? Over 400 years, <laughs> right? It's God's timing when he delivers us, not our timing when he delivers us. And we hate that because we want it now. We want the pain to stop now. I want to know what I have to do to make this go away. God, deliver me now. Get this over now. And God's going, I'm doing stuff here. You don't want me to do this right now. I'm in the middle of sanctifying you and growing you. The trial's going to be up when it's going to be up, when I say so, according to my plan. And so we're fine with God delivering us, but we have to remember that that too is according to God's sovereign plan. And the really hard truth is that some of us are not going to be delivered from some of the things until we see him face to face. He never promises. This is the heresy of the false gospel, of the prosperity gospel, of all of that word speak it over your life nonsense, right? We're never guaranteed everything in this life, ever. Because of what we need heaven for. It's always we're going to be completely fulfilled in the next life. Sure, God does deliver this life. Absolutely, yes and amen. He does transform things. He grows things. But let's keep in mind, it's his plan, not ours, and we have to trust. We also see here that God is sovereign over betrayal. What a passage demonstrating the tension, again, of free will and divine sovereignty. And betrayal hurts. When a friend is no longer a friend and that friend becomes your enemy. When someone spreads gossip and lies about us. When a spouse commits adultery or is caught lying to you. When a child steals from you or or does something else. When a trusted business partner or customer is dishonest. We've all been betrayed. And betrayals hurt. And this is part of the account of the cross that we can stop church and we can know that Jesus knows exactly what it feels like when we are betrayed. He knows what it feels like. Other accounts, again, I believe it's John's account, tells us that Jesus was troubled in spirit at the thought of someone betraying him. He was upset. He knows. And so when we are betrayed, church, and I hate to say that probably all of us at some point or another will be betrayed by someone we love, the first thing to remember is that Jesus understands exactly what that feels like because he was betrayed himself. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but rather we have one who is tempted in every way like us, but yet he did not sin. Jesus knows, he feels, he's able to sympathize with us. But second, we need to remember that Jesus will never be the one betraying us. It's impossible for Jesus to betray us. He is perfectly faithful. He is perfectly good. And also, maybe a third point of application, we need to realize that the sin of betrayal is part of the very reason that Jesus came. He knows exactly the humanity and the sin that goes on, people lying to each other, stabbing each other in the back, betraying one another, turning one another in, right? He knows that that's why he came, was to go to the cross to be the answer for sin. 
This is the, the betrayal and the sin of betrayal is part of the sin that Jesus is going to the cross in the first place. Which he, watch this, don't miss this either. What is he doing? He's enduring betrayal so that we can be forgiven when we betray others. Or that we can be remembering what Jesus feels when we are betrayed. He's, he's reconciling our betrayal by being betrayed himself. God will deliver you in his sovereign timing. God knows what betrayal is like, and he's sovereign over both. He's going to the cross to fix it. God is sovereign over betrayal. He's sovereign over our deliverance. And the work of the cross is exactly where Jesus goes next in fulfillment of the Passover. Look at verse 26. Now, as they were eating... Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. All right, so if the Passover meal is not strange enough, right, having a nice time in the upper room, eating the Passover meal, celebrating, Jesus drops this huge bomb that one of them there tonight will betray him. That brought the mood down a lot, right? Now he says, he, he takes the bread, breaks it, and says, this is my body. And he takes the cup, probably the cup of Thanksgiving, the third cup in the Passover supper, I believe it is. He takes the cup, it's wine, it's red, and he says, this is my blood. Okay, like the disciples must be like, what? This is definitely the weirdest Passover that I've ever been to in my life. He says, Jesus, that's not your body. That's a, that's a piece of bread, right? It's not, it's not your blood, that's wine. He takes it, he gives his, commands him, he says, take, eat, this is my body. He tells him to take the wine, drink, all of you, for this is my blood. And of course, this is uh, metaphors, right? The bread being his body that was given, or will be given for us on the cross, and the cup being the blood which will be poured out on the cross. Now, if you know anything at all, your heads might be spinning a little bit in Roman Catholic theology right now, they would take this extremely literally. And they would say that, no, Jesus said the bread is his body and the, the wine is his blood. So therefore, somehow, when we do the Eucharist, there's some sort of thing that happens where the bread actually becomes the actual physical body of Jesus Christ and the wine actually becomes the actual physical blood of Jesus Christ which is why if you've ever been to a Roman Mass, you'll see the, the seriousness and the somberness and the seri of the way they handle those elements because they believe that it's literally what Jesus says here. The only problem with that is the Word of God, right? That's not what this says. It's not, it, the bread can't be his body because he's currently using his body. It, it's a metaphor and they miss it. It's, it's transubstantiation. And it's one of the things that the Romans said, or the Reformers said, 
That's, that's not what we're talking Sure, the reformers did fight amongst themselves about what, was it the spiritual presence? Was it the mystical presence? Was it the symbolistic presence? All of that stuff. We'll leave that over here, a nice big mess. But they knew it wasn't actually the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's not. There's no way that can be logical, correct, or biblical. Jesus is standing there with his body and blood, so it can't be literally what he means. It's a metaphor, like he's been saying all along. I am the door, I am the shepherd, all of that. Jesus is obviously using the metaphor that his bread is like the body, which will therefore be broken and pierced and killed for them. And the wine is like his blood, which will be poured out for them on the cross as a sacrifice. In two statements, church, Jesus makes the unbelievable claim that his impending death fulfills the Passover supper. Imagine that. Imagine being one of the disciples growing up for whatever your 30, 40 years, whatever they were, right? All the time, knowing, understanding what the Passover supper is, understanding the significance of it. How many times have you celebrated the Passover feast? And then Jesus says, this is about me. This is me. This is my sacrifice that I will make on the cross. He will literally become the Passover lamb for his people. And he's saying once again that he will fulfill the old law. He will fulfill the old covenant. Remember way back in Matthew 5 when we were there like six years ago, right? We were talking about Jesus kept saying, don't think that I've come to abolish the law. Rather, I've come to fulfill the law. Again, he's doing it time and time again. He says, this is another part of that. I'm fulfilling it. He goes on to say that his body and blood will be given, poured out for many, for the remission, the forgiveness of sins. And this word here actually does mean remission. It's a removal of sin. It's a taking away of the charge of guilt. But don't miss the point. We can't just have sin removed. The guilt has to be forgiven first. And so in order for the sin to be in remission, to be removed, the big Bible word is expiated, to remove the guilt, God has to be, big Bible word, propitiated. God, the wrath of God has to be satisfied before the sin can be removed. That's what Jesus says. That's the whole point of the cross. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, he says, will usher in a new covenant, an entirely new way of relating to God. Gone will be the animal sacrifices, the feasts, the Passover lamb. Once and for all, Jesus will be the only way to God. And that is only through his death that he will do. Probably the next day. This is what Jeremiah spoke of long ago. We jump back to Jeremiah 31 reading Jeremiah in my yearly chronological read. I came across this actually this week, so that was very, very encouraging. Jeremiah 31, 31 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, declares the Lord God, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. See how the whole Bible tells one story? My covenant that they broke, although I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. 
from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will, watch this, I will forgive their sin, their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. You better believe that those disciples in that upper room that night knew Jesus was talking exactly about Jeremiah chapter 31. They knew that story. They knew that, that prophecy like the back of their hand. And that's exactly what Jesus is catching. And the author of Hebrews actually unmistakably says that Jesus fulfilled this and actually quotes Jeremiah. In Hebrews chapter 8, if I look at verse 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained the ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. Or if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. And then he goes on to quote Jeremiah chapter 8. Right in, right in Hebrews. And then look at verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. The significance of Jesus saying that he is then the Passover lamb and fulfilling the old covenant and starting a new covenant is massive. And the disciples know it. They understand this. Jesus is the new covenant, and he's telling them this by fulfilling the old covenant Passover as the Lamb of God. Not only that, in our main passage back in Matthew, verse 29 points again to Jesus' return. He's been hopping back and forth to this the whole time, and now he comes back to it one more time and says, yeah, I'm not going to drink any more wine with you guys until I come again and until the new kingdom until I come to judge the earth, until I come to establish the kingdom of God on earth. Again, from that scene in Revelation, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the return of Jesus, where we will drink wine and celebrate the feast with him as he returns to establish his kingdom. Jesus clearly communicates his mission, the fulfillment of the covenant, making a new covenant, bringing forgiveness through his sacrifice. And so I'll say it this way, God is sovereign over sacrifice and forgiveness. God is sovereign over sacrifice and forgiveness. Jesus is in control here, church. Nothing's going wrong. Nothing's going out of plan. He knows his mission. His mission first is a mission of sacrifice much like the Passover lamb that gave its life to remember God's deliverance from slavery, so Jesus will give his life to deliver his people from the bondage of slavery. One author puts it this way, the Lord's Supper redefined the Passover meal as a celebration of God's second and greatest act of redemption through the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross. What Jesus has done is established the ordinance of communion, the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, one of two. We recognize two. Again, Catholic Church recognizes seven. Not sure where they get the other five, but two that Jesus established. We have the Lord's Supper and we have baptism, right? Because Jesus instituted both of those. Highland celebrates communion, the Lord's Table, monthly. I really, really thought about doing it this morning and decided not to. Um, Jesus establishes the, t- the Lord's Supper. And we like to say that the Lord's Supper does three things. It identifies, it edifies, and by that we remember. First of all, it identifies. The people who are taking, I'm pointing to what would be the communion elements down here, right? 
the people that take the communion elements are people that are Christ's. So when I, when I administer the elements, you will often hear me fence the table. That this is for Christians. If you are a Christian, you are welcome to take the elements. If you're not a Christian, thank you for being here. Let's let the elements pass, right? But identifies who are Jesus' followers. When you're taking those elements, you understand that those elements mean exactly what Jesus is talking about here. You get that, and you believe that, and you want to live it. It also edifies. It builds us up a little bit with a little bit of food, and we're reminded that apart from God, we can do nothing. And lastly, it's a memorial. We're remembering the body and the, the, the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on the cross. That's what we do when we do communion. The new covenant brings forgiveness through sacrifice, and God is sovereign over both. And so what? What does that mean for us in application? A couple things maybe to help us. First, we realize there's one and only one way for your guilt to be removed, to have those sins forgiven. Right? There's one and only way, only one way, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ of what he did on the cross and who he was. And so if you're here today, and you're struggling with your guilt, and you're struggling with that conflict that is raging in your soul, this is why. Because you still have unresolved guilt in your soul. And there's little warning lights going on saying you need to deal with that. And God's given you the way through Jesus Christ to deal with that. And that's the only way. Hear me clearly. That's the only way that you will be able to deal with that. Is through faith in Jesus Christ. When you do that, the guilt of your sin is removed, and therefore sin can be forgiven, which is what Jesus said. Also note, though, what did Jesus say? He says, being poured out for everybody? For many, he says. There's a step you need to take. This isn't just automatic direct deposit here. This isn't universalism. You need to consciously repent of your sin and place your full faith in what Jesus did on the cross in order for this to count for you. And that's what the gospel means. That's what the gospel is. We place our faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. So remember, first and foremost, there's one and only one way for your guilt to be removed. But if you are a Christian here today, if you are part of the church, if you are a Christian Remember, every time you feel guilt, every time you sin, every time you feel that conflict in your soul, every time you feel that distance between you and your creator, remember this passage and be encouraged that your sins are, in fact, forgiven. And the guilt is, in fact, gone. Because we will. We'll experience that all the time, won't we? Every time we mess up, every time something happens, we feel that tension. And you should feel a little bit of that fear and you should think back immediately. That's, it's done. It's forgiven. And then we align ourselves with who we really are supposed to be. So church Christians, be reminded that your sins are indeed forgiven. And when you doubt that, return to this passage. Return to the image of Jesus Christ on the cross and remember what it cost for you to be forgiven and be restored. If we really come to terms with this truth, church, it should change everything. Our entire perspective on life then becomes one of worship and fulfillment and joy because of the sacrifice of Jesus for our sin. What grace that is.
when we see what Jesus has done for us, we should respond in awe-filled worship at the sovereignty of God for his sacrifice of his son Jesus that brings us the forgiveness of sin. And what does that mean in practical everyday life? It means do we walk in sin anymore? Absolutely not. We strive to live lives glorifying to God through holiness. And our friend, the Apostle Paul, ties all of this together nicely for us as I land the plane. I think I put this in your bulletins. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. Paul talking about bread and leaven. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Isn't that great? You guys are not only sheep, you're new lumps. You might be a new lump as you are really unleavened. For Christ, watch this, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, not with unleavened bread, not with the Passover, not all that, but how? Not with the leaven of sin, of malice and evil, but with this, the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Did you hear that joy in Paul's voice when he said that? I can't do any better than the Apostle Paul in appliance. One of the things also we learned in midweek, right? Let Scripture interpret Scripture. Here we go. Apostle Paul does it for us, right? God is sovereign over deliverance and betrayal. He will deliver us from this sin-filled world one day because Jesus, why? Because Jesus, the Passover lamb, was sacrificed. He's already given his body and his blood for many on the cross. And the question is, are you one of the many? God is sovereign over betrayal. What an example of the sovereignty of God and the depth of how Christ sympathizes with us. He understands what betrayal means. Yet he was betrayed so that we can be reconciled with God. He's sovereign over his sacrifice on the cross and the forgiveness that it wins. And so what does all this mean for us? How does that help us? What encouragement do we have much in every way? Paul tells the Corinthians, guys, guess what? Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So go and live a joyful life in the grace of God and live your life not in sacrifice of the old law with the the feasts, the unleavened bread, the Passover, but do so in a way of sincerity and truth. Do so in a way of pursuing, here we go, holiness because it's always about our sanctification. It's always about our growth. It's always about the lives that we live in sincerity and truth. And how can we ever possibly do that? Because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. That's how. Not one, a life lived in evil, but one lived in holiness because the sovereign Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And therefore, we walk in that new covenant of hope. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Lord, this passage that we look at, and we see the pain of betrayal, which we'll look at next week, Lord. We see your sacrifice. We see the way that you are sovereign over all things, especially in your sacrifice of fulfilling the old covenant and making a new covenant so that we can be right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, would we be encouraged because as the foundation for our whole lives, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed once for all. That the lives that we may now live, Lord, we don't live in ourselves, but rather in faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. Let that empower our whole lives as we endeavor to live lives of holiness, sincerity, and truth.
people your glory, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.